Kia ora koutou, katoa everyone, welcome to the Hoon, the weekly Hoon that we have on the Kaka. Remember, the Hoon is the collective noun for Kaka. And uh, we have it with Peter Bale. Great to see you, Peter, in a resplendent blue shirt today. Well, I was admiring yours as well, Bernard, but I think my iron must be in better condition than yours at the moment. <laughs> that is true. No, I've been sort of busy. But yes, no, I'm just sort of sick and tired of wearing bloody, um, being under lockdown and wearing, um, you know, gorgeous New Zealand merino. So I decided to put something a little groovier on today. Oh, it, just, it just feels like summer. And um, I understand in Auckland, it's a gorgeous day there. It is a gorgeous day. Yesterday was utterly cloudless. Today's got a little bit of cloud, but it is good. And I, I might even take my paddleboard out for a splash around um, over the weekend with any luck. I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Now, um, what did you? What, now, what should we talk what about, we to start about with? COVID? Yeah, well, COVID. Well, so I mean, COVID, schmovid. So um, I have to keep you off housing, although I imagine we will go straight into the bloody housing again when you get to the uh, Reserve Bank as well. But Bernard, it's pretty crit- critical week, two critical weeks for the government on COVID. Bit of slippage there. And there is no longer quite the Teflon perfection in the way the government has handled this and been so coherent. I have a couple of weeks of really quite uncoherent messaging. And we're definitely in a different phase, particularly in Auckland now. Um, that's that's you, right. You got in a lot of trouble a couple of weeks ago with a truly excellent, in fact, a couple of months ago now, I think, with a truly excellent piece that speculated that with some foundation, that elimination was no longer the strategy and no longer feasible. So where do we stand? Yeah, well, unfortunately, um, we got to that point that I, I expected we would, that we'd have to abandon elimination. And that, uh, unfortunately, it wouldn't come at the same time as an opening of the borders or a removal mm. of the restrictions. And so we're in this awful sort of in-between um, place where we have um, clearly a rampant outbreak that is probably going to double the number of cases in the next couple of weeks, where the R value is clearly above one, where the attempts to squash COVID really ended probably three or four weeks ago in reality. And now uh, mm. that the restrictions were removed two weeks ago in, Au- in Auckland, we're seeing the explosion in the number of cases. Now, of course, the great hope was that we would win the race to vaccinate ahead of the, the um, uh, ahead of the virus, but we're not quite there yet. You know, um, first dose. No, we're not, and it's and it's also been a, just sort of, but it's really clearly affecting uh, the Pacifica and Maori populations as well. I mean, we know that there are there are. Um, you know, lower health outcomes, um, less access to health from those groups, poorer life expectancy. But the number, the proportions of the of those these latest cases who are either Pacifica or or Maori is deeply concerning. Um, not just because of it's those groups that are living in uh, you know overcrowded housing and often transitory housing and transitional housing and so on, but we we know also that there's a, a lower vaccine take up. So it's a very interesting critical problem, which um, Grant Robertson seemed to step into a little bit yesterday with a remark that was slightly slightly taken out of context, but that that he he seemed to be slightly dismissive of the ethnicity problem uh, in the breakdown of of who is most vulnerable to COVID. That's right. Um, The big problem here for the government is that way back in March, there was a decision taken at cabinet level where a whole bunch of Maori health experts and people in iwi groups and in whanau water groups said to the government, please, please prioritise the vaccination of Maori because they are the uh, least likely to be connected to the health system, the least likely to have a high vaccination rate, but the most likely to have to be hospitalised or to die in any outbreak if they're unvaccinated. Mm. Mm. And the government thought about it and decided in the end to take the politically sensible line <laughs> of not prioritising by ethnicity. And uh, Rawari McCree Jensen, who I interviewed for a podcast on the spinoff about two months ago. Yeah, very, ev- seems a very sensible person. Oh, I was yeah. quite struck by his resignation at that time. It just it seemed too early. But clearly he, he had a really strong sense that we weren't going to address this problem as he felt it needed to be. Yeah, I mean, he could understand that the Ministry of Health, which has really been in charge of the response for this, and remember it's a policy ministry, not really a doing <laughs> ministry, and its connections, remember we're talking about a bunch of bureaucrats in Wellington who've come out of the best um, 
private schools and, uh, you know, have their eyes on the top jobs and bureaucracy are actually not, surprisingly enough, connected to a lot of these community groups in these suburbs and in these towns, the most remote, difficult to access, least trustful um, parts of New Zealand. And, you know, that was March when he resigned from there. And since then, um, Māori groups have been advocating strongly to try and ramp up Mm. the engagement with, with the local communities. And some have just just gone ahead and um, taken their own actions. For example, in some areas, you know, there's incredibly high vaccination rates. So yeah, and some... they seem to be very effective. You know, when, once they've sort of deployed, it seems to be very effective. And of course, the prime minister went to Murapara um, last week, and I think is going out again, going out again this weekend to try to generate, you know, to use her her um, you know personal charisma to to get this moving. Yeah, and um, she will do that again, and and rightly so. And it is great to see a sort of a national effort developing this weekend for Super Saturday, and there will be a um, a vaxathon. I mean, it really is going sort of back to the future. We all remember those mm. those uh, telethons back in the days when we had two TV stations, and you know, thank you very much for your kind donation. I mean, it's it's yeah, going to be. God, sort of I fun. hated them. I hated them even <laughs> as a young child. I hate they were unbelievably excruciating. Yeah. Now, Bernard, I was just looking at a friend of ours, Michael Field, posted before, just to get to this point of of the Maori and Pacifica um, problem in this area, and I don't mean a problem with them. Maori, 26.7% of all COVID cases, 14% of the population. Pacific people, 51% of all cases, 7.4% of the population. This is not good. Mm. You know, this is, a, this is a really, this is a critical and kind of known health gap that we should have seen coming that we did see coming that the government saw coming but as you say has has certainly according to maori um been somewhat uh less than sure-footed on this yeah and it's all coming to a crux now so really the last couple of days has been the tipping point in this crisis um up until a few days ago the government could credibly say that it was still trying to squash COVID. maybe not eliminate it but certainly in this phrase, stamp it out, started to come mm. into the lexicon. Um, but now that we've gone, we had 71 cases yesterday, 60-something today. Mm. And even Carolyn McElne in yesterday's presser was saying that we're going to be doubling the cases over the next week or two. Yep. And they, there are credible people saying we're looking at a Melbourne or Sydney-style explosion. I mean, this is the... This is the mathematics. Yeah, it's so concerning. Mm. Yeah, and they're not looking at they're not looking out clusters. It's gone too far for them to look at these clusters and do this amazing and excellent work that's been done every time in the past year to identify every case. You know, they're just they're having to abandon some of these really remarkable and important and highly admirable ways in which we've tracked every variant down, every uh, case down. They're just not going to be able to do that now. That's right. I mean, that was one of the points I made in that piece you mentioned from uh, six weeks or so ago now. It's an excellent piece, Bernard. Thank, thank you. Yeah. And and uh, I got a lot of blowback at the time from a lot of my, you know, mates, I suppose you could call them the lefties on Twitter, who were saying, you know, how, how do you um, uh, sow doubt into the minds of um, the, the good New Zealand uh, eliminators? Um, and part of my argument was that Delta is so infectious that once it gets a little bit out of control, the traces and trackers are overwhelmed pretty quickly. And there was a moment at the beginning in mid-August when they were overwhelmed for a couple of days until we went into level four. But the moment you let the brakes off, um, bang, you're out of control. And as we saw from Carolyn McKellar yesterday, she said that when the cases double, so from 70 to 140, it's not much more above that, about 170, when the trackers and traces are blown yeah, away. Yeah, it they just, just becomes impossible. They just can't but, but, so tell, what, what's one of the most interesting aspects of this week is being people like Michael Baker, uh, probably not Sean Hendy from, from Auckland, but certainly Michael Baker and a couple of the others saying that they don't think the government is quite listening to them the way they were a year ago. Now, what is that all about? Um, you know, only It's only two weeks, I think, since we had what I thought of as Project Fear when the handy figures of, um, of, of 7,000 cases was, um, was released much to, to, to some controversy and, and as part of the sort of drive and incentive really to fear people, get to you know, get people to go and get vaccinated. 
what do you think is going on with this previous, previously listened to a very important group of epidemiologists and microbiologists and modelers? What's, what's happening there? What I think is that people have gone into their shells under fire. I mean, it's natural, you know, when the when the bombs are going off and the political pressure is on and some people who you thought were in your camp put their hands up and say, hey, this is probably not the best way to do it, or I criticize the, the logic of what you're doing or the numbers that you use, people go into their shells. And it's been a year now, particularly the last six months or so, where the government has felt under fire where it was in a tough place. On the one hand, it had its um, supporters on the left saying, stay locked down, mm. stick with elimination. And on the right, you had people like John Key, the opposition saying, we can't stay this lockdown anymore. Oh, and is John Key the opposition now? <laughs> he's the de facto leader, it turns out. Mm. And mm. his intervention a couple of weeks ago has turned out to be very important. Now, some people think it's all a grand capitalist plot to beat up on the government. I'm not so sure about that. There are plenty of people who are not necessarily, you know, um, uh, all about uh, protecting the interests of business who are also challenging the the um, the elimination strategy as a long-term something we should, we should um, die in a ditch for. And uh, that has meant that the government's felt under pressure. It's felt mm. in on the defensive mode. And when you do that, it's sort of natural you start to stop talking to people. You start only talking to your supporters. But do you think that's actually what's happened to you, Because I also wondered, uh, and, and you and our, our friend and colleague, Patrick Smelly, has done some very good work on the SCAG report. Mm. Now, a lot of what's happened was forecast by SCAG. Um, perhaps not the breakout in South Auckland that, that occurred, I think, pretty much two or three weeks after he um, you know, announced that kind of pathway or proposed that sort of pathway out of elimination and into opening up. Um, I mean, I see uh, Luke Malcolm on, on our group, group chat there is, is asking us what we think the feasible options are. I, I, I would have thought that having a, you know, having a something of a round table with the, with Michael Bakers and so on is essential. Um, uh, and to, to sort of, do you remember when they lo not lost control, but last year there was, a, you know, there were a couple of errors clear errors in government policy or clear errors where the government felt it had pulled levers and they weren't responding down lower, particularly thinking about that issue of um, two women who travelled from Auckland to Wellington, and then there was another one with the border controls, uh, the border people not being tested. Now, so they have recovered from a couple of sort of error-prone incidents in the past. Can they recover from this and get a grip on it? It really de depends on how bad the outbreak gets, because at the moment, the official modelers uh, from the Ministry of Health are saying we're looking at 5,000 cases a month within a month or two. And if that is the case, then you're looking at 500 hospitalizations and potentially um, many dozens in ICUs. We currently have uh, two thirds of our ICUs. We only have about 300 beds in the country mm. and uh, less than half of those in Auckland. And the risk is, of course, that the hospital system not only gets overwhelmed, but actually has to stop doing non-COVID work. And in fact, yes. it's pretty much already at that point. Which is pr pretty much what happened in the UK. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of hidden damage that's done when you do that. Um, people who may have cancer right now, but don't know it because they can't get in for a test. People who are going to have heart attacks or car crashes and maybe don't get the care that they would normally get. And uh, those are things that are impossible to forecast or there's no one really advocating for those people within the system when these decisions are made. And, yeah. I think and that was also, Bernard, if you remember, one of the reasons why they said that the vaccine rollout was relatively comparatively slow because they said they were trying to run a health system at the same time. You know, they were trying to, it wasn't just about COVID. They were, and, and we have been sort of, uh, there's been you know a lot of good fortune here about the number of um cancer operations and cancer you know there hasn't been that much interruption until now that's right but and, just on a, you know one of the one of the key things but is, is michael baker is saying we need to go to well, i think he's going saying we need to go to level four in auckland again now uh grant robertson seemed grant robertson seemed yesterday to um double down on what chris sipkins had said the day before that there was really very little difference between level three and level four in terms of its effectiveness its suppression 
Now, I, I'm not convinced about that myself. Um, no, and well, I do wonder it, whether, it's, whether it's, going to level four is a smart option as these numbers rise. Yeah, well, it's simply not true to say that level three is um, mm. not almost the same as level four. We're talking about 280,000 people who are going to work every day who weren't previously. Uh, mm. And it's true that the border restrictions are still at level four levels, but it's clear that the level of pain and grief for people trying to get across that border in and out is very high. And the government mm -hmm. made a decision two weeks ago because they felt they were losing social <coughs> license for these restrictions. And the danger is yeah. once people believe that everyone else is not abiding by the rules, then you get a, a mass reaction and everyone says, well, what's the point of this? I'm wearing my mask. Mm. I'm not going to visit my auntie in the next two suburbs. And everyone else is, well, that doesn't seem fair. And once you lose that sort of cohesiveness and that sense of we're all in this together it very yeah. quickly erodes and the government well how do we get it back then because I, I i agree with you that that is you know that has well two two things have you know and, and, and as you know i normally live in england but you know i am in new zealand but i normally live in england you know i'm still looking at forty-five thousand cases a day there 157 deaths a day and of course a parliamentary report today said it was the worst health crisis in history and had been unbelievably badly managed. One of the key issues there was the, it was the lack of coherence of the messaging, was the lack of going hard and going early. Um, and I, I felt, although it's a little bit harder in a, in a country of 60 million, the excessive police enforcement of some of the rules really caused a backlash. Whereas here, you know, unless it's Brian Tamaki being arrested a week or being being charged uh, a week a week or so after his, um, which I thought was a very intelligent strategy by the cops, by the way. But you know, there's there's uh, a little bit of enforcement just on the margins, but they're generally trying not to be too heavy-handed about it. Uh, and it is the whole team of five million idea. Yeah, it's starting to fray though that um, that line um, because of what's mm. happened with the Maori and Pacific community, as you pointed out <laughs> earlier, with the very high. Uh, COVID case rates for Māori and Pacifica and the very low vaccination rates relatively for those groups. That Those groups are bearing the burden right now. And you can see too in Auckland, in the business communities, a lot of small businesses um, who may be hung on for the first five yeah. or six weeks are now at the point of saying, when do I pull the plug? When do I decide I can't do this anymore? And, and yeah. also frustration amongst many who... You know, have done it tough through the last six to eight weeks. Maybe they've they've got um, two or three jobs, precarious work. They haven't received any benefits from the government. And what was interesting, I thought this week, was that on Monday, the Prime Minister said that there was going to be some extra income support to come for people yeah. on low incomes. And she talked about Carmel Cipollone coming out in the next few days to do that. Well, it's Friday. And it hasn't we, come. It hasn't come. Yeah. It may well come on and, Saturday and, or Sunday, but for, for a lot of people, they don't feel like this has been a, a fair process. And it's worth pointing out that the government this time around hasn't put quite so much cash into the bank accounts of businesses. It's been about $4 billion so far, as opposed to $14 billion in the first two months of last week, year's lockdowns. And... When anyone takes the time to have a look at the Reserve Bank's term deposit and savings figures, which I do for fun, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that non-financial businesses, their term deposits and savings accounts have gone from $80 billion before the lockdowns to $110 billion now. Yeah, I don't think that's too many restaurants in Auckland that are in that position, are they? Well... No, that's right. There's a few businesses um, and there are a few wealthy individuals in, in, in that mm. situation. But it's it's a really interesting thing that um, when you have an inequality in a society as we do now, that sense of social cohesion frays quickly, particularly when the government, um, despite being a you know left-leaning, Labour, Green coalition, has actually funneled the most cash to those people in business and has done things to make those people who have assets much, much wealthier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but um, what about Christmas? So I don't want to get into that whole is Boris Johnson slash Jacinda Ardern going to save Christmas? But one of the modelers that we both know reckons that we're going to be in one of these levels pretty much until Christmas, um, if not beyond. And that's one of the things that's sort of doubly concerning about that, of course, is 
um, it's summer, you know, spring and summer. It's 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 it, it's it's seasonally we should be in an advantageous period, not a disadvantageous period. What do you think is going to happen? Are we going to go have a circuit breaker again in Auckland, or are we just going to be in this uh, linear purgatory? <laughs> Sadly, I think it's purgatory until Christmas and beyond for mm. Auckland, Northland. It's a real pity because, frankly, Peter, I'd love to come to Auckland and share a beer with you mm. in person. That mm. sounds like the best thing ever, um, but I'm stuck here in Wellington. And unfortunately, because the level of stress is going to grow so much on the hospital system, and um, there is, of course, this demand to go back to level four, the government will have to hold off on doing that simply for political and economic reasons. Mm. But... They will also have to try and hold the line at level three with the with the amount of... Remember, in two weeks' time, we're going to have 200, 300 cases. We're going to, we're going to have Middlemore ICU maxed out. Yeah. Is, I also noticed, Bernard, today that the, 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 the distribution of the cases is, is not just in South Auckland, because there's a big pocket oh, in North Shore. the North Shore as well, mm. which I, I hadn't fully appreciated until I saw someone's story on that today. And also Northland is going to be the problem. It's mm. it's clearly um, circulating up there. And also in, in the Waikato, Northland has a particular problem because it's so remote and there will be so many people um, who will be funneled into the Whangarei mm. Hospital and it has very little space. So the, the pressure will be on there to keep those restrictions in place. And as we heard from Michael Baker, who's been pretty on the money with his modelling and his um, questioning of the government in the last few weeks, and one of the reasons he wasn't consulted in the decision to go to elimination. I thought that was one of the biggest news stories this yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. The, the... And, and Bernard, I heard um, Andrew Little on the radio this week as well, and I must admit I wasn't, you know, I th- he seems like somebody who's got a lot of personal authenticity, uh, but he also shows quite often his frustration with his own ministry um, and he seemed rather evasive on all of this and, and sort of slight, not, I wouldn't say out to lunch, but he just didn't seem to be as on top of his brief as one might expect and gave no real sense of confidence about ICU beds, um, negative pressure rooms, that kind of thing. I didn't come away from that feeling as though the health um, ministry or the DHBs were necessarily in that greater shape to, I, to I, face up to this. I think the key thing to know here is that the Ministry of Health with Ashley Bloomfield as its Director General, has a great reputation in the public domain because Ashley is, you know, the Ashley and Jacinda so for, for two years. We've seen Ashley um, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, um, uh, friendly, accessible, cohe- coherent on our screens at 1 o'clock and then at the 6 o'clock newses. And even now, he's still, you know, there are still tea towels and T-shirts out there yeah. being sold. Bernard, I wonder whether there's... But, so we're having the vaccathon tomorrow, you know, all of that, and, and we're going to try and get, get more vaccine in. I've got mine too, thank you, which is, which is fabulous. Um, I feel like going down and giving, you know, having a wee chat to the, to the mayor of Coromandel and Thames. Um, but uh, something is going to happen, have to happen in the next couple of days. And I recall that you were very closely connected to that conversation at a similar moment of crisis or similar moment of opportunity last year when the Prime Minister chaired a sort of conversation with business leaders and got that kind of reinforcement to go hard and go early, uh, even though some people said she should have gone harder and earlier. Uh, Do you think we might see something like that, a sort of summit in a sense of business, government and and the models? Unfortunately, I think that sense of a cohesion has fractured. And a lot of those people who were in there in those early days, mm. in that third week of March, who advised the government and supported the government wholeheartedly, oh. have been burnt off in mm. the last um, few months of discussions and of the Prime Minister's circle effectively um, becoming smaller and smaller and the level of engagement with the rest of the economy, business, bureaucracies, the other side of politics mm. is much less. It's much more politically focused. It's much more about optics than it was before. And as I, as I mentioned on the Ashley Bloomfield side of things, and you quick, you rightly picked up in the tone of what Andrew Little is saying, the government is no fan of the Ministry of Health right now. They are tired of the yeah. cock-ups. They are tired of the frustrations of a lot of people in business who've been trying to get in there to get uh, antigen tests going and Mm -hmm. saliva tests going. The Ministry of Health, um, 
sort of understandably, it's a, it's a policy ministry. It's there to write papers for cabinet ministers. It's not there to organise things on the ground. It was given that job at the start because the DHB system was dysfunctional and is still not, you know, obviously set up right. Mm. And now uh, Ashley Bloomfield is very popular with the public. He is not popular in the cabinet and not popular in the yeah. bureaucracies because of the various failings of the Ministry of Health particularly in coordinating with um, community groups on the ground. Um, and uh, I think, here's a, here's a wild piece of speculation for you, that at some time in the next two to three months, um, Ashley Bloomfield quietly stops appearing on those platforms with the PM and not too long after that um, retires for a nice quiet rest, as, you know, he he deserves. Um, it must That's a very interesting thought, because no, I just noticed Dara in our in our group of listeners, thanks very much, um, suggested that, in fact, it should always have been led by health ministry people and, uh, and that it should not have been, quotes, politicised. Now, I actually take a different view on that, because we knew the Prime Minister had a great deal of personal national credibility last March, and I, I you know, particularly having watched this and compared it with what happened in the UK, and to some extent what happened in Victoria and New South Wales, she has... 90% of the time, at least, being a very credible presence and has had incredible presence of mind and deep knowledge about what she's been speaking about. Every now and then, I too have been slightly exhausted by the um, team of team of five million and the and the one that drives me batty is the, uh, you will have heard me say a week ago, no, I didn't necessarily. Um, and, and occasionally I've had, I have heard Ashley, but I, I generally think the messaging has been extremely good and must continue in that vein and i don't think it's politicized although i have occasionally wondered bernard whether a smart tactic might have been to have um judith collins and, and national more in the tent pissing out rather than than, than giving them yeah, free range think, to piss I in think again there was more of that to um, coin an old this, expression yeah there was more of that uh in march last year uh, i remember we had that um uh select committee uh those select committee hearings were effectively were run by simon bridges mm. And there was quite a bit of um, activity behind the scenes between the opposition and the government to maintain a clear message. And to be fair to Judith Collins and the opposition, they have gotten behind Super Saturday in a really big way as well. Have they? Tell, tell us what they're doing. Uh, so um, the opposition have, you know, said to everyone, please make sure you get vexed, come along to the Super Saturday stuff, and all of those MPs are doing it. And it's great. I must say, the, the, the most impressive thing I've seen this week is Shane Retty, the uh, National Party's health spokesman, basically has given up on politics and has gone back to being a GP. I was, I was just about to mention Shane Retty, or Dr. Shane Retty, yes, Dr. as uh, Shane. Judith Collins always says. And, you know, and I, I know he has a really huge career in Harvard as a researcher and so on. As, as somebody on Twitter said, you know, he's behaving like a true rangatira. Yeah. He's, yeah. Gone back to, he's gone back to the countryside and is helping with, you know, he's using his mana... To, um, to influence people's vaccine decisions. And, of course, also the rather eccentric uh, West Coast MP, Maureen Pugh, announced that she uh, had been hit wow. by lightning again. Oh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, had been vaccinated. Yeah, maybe she was waiting for the lightning to do the vaccination. Um, elect electrification is a vaccination tool. Yeah, know. yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Let's not go on to the woman from Coromandel and ah. and because uh, well, we could defame her as well, yeah, yeah. as well as Winston Peters. Now, Bernard, you need to ask me about what's going on in the rest of the world. Oh, please, is anything right? to get us away out of this COVID hell. So, tell us what is going on. Let's let's start in Pakistan. I, I think this is oh, really also interesting. Pakistan, one of my favourite countries, and uh, thinking about this. Yeah. So, in, I, I did a. My normal weekly uh, bulletin, world bulletin for for the spin-off, which is you know almost as popular as your podcast and and show, um, and one of the most interesting stories to me this week, uh, or because it allows us to have a look at nuclear non-proliferation and and kind of how we got to where we are, was the death uh, by COVID, from COVID of uh, AQ Khan, who was a Pakistani uh, scientist, a nuclear scientist who really proposed to former Prime Minister Bhutto, the first Bhutto, uh, um, uh, that Pakistan build its own nuclear deterrent. So AQ Khan stole um, various uh, plans for nuclear centrifuges and so on from a company in, uh, that he was working for in the Netherlands, brought them back to Pakistan. And, uh, you know, of course, this was as India was, was, had already shown that it had its, its nuclear weapons uh, and created the Pakistani bomb. However, it's at the same time... Because it's such a, such a poor country. Uh, yes. It's very militarised, but no way should they have had the resources to do that. 
Well, exactly. But, you know, it is it is another reminder that, you know, governments are very powerful things. Governments are very powerful forces. And as we know, in uh, in, in Pakistan, you know, people often say it's a it's a military with a country attached. Uh, and, and it is the military that calls the shots there. And so he, he was given whatever the resources were needed to develop that. But at the same time, he created what became known as the Khan Network. And the Khan Network um, cooperated, supplied drawings, supplied equipment as necessary to North Korea, mm. Iran, and then went one step too, too far and started uh, supplying nuclear technology and knowledge to Libya. And that was the moment when the Americans and the British had to tap uh, the Pakistanis on the shoulder and suggest that they were now fully aware of what AQ Khan was up to. And so he really spent the last several years of his life in theoretical house arrest in quite luxurious um, house arrest as a national hero. So it's been an interesting sort of dilemma for the various uh, Pakistani leaders to try and manage. But I must, I must you know, say, Imran so- Khan, the, pa- the Pakistani prime minister, hailed him as a national hero. Really? Mm, absolutely. He's, he's given them the bomb and the option of the bomb. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of amazing that there hasn't been an accidental um, nuclear war between India and Pakistan because they both uh, have it. But I think you're right. Um, his creation of that um, informal... Uh, network of uh, nuclear bomb builders in third world countries has done more to destabilize the world and it's it seems to me complete sheer luck that we haven't had you know something go off um, between India and Pakistan or North Korea and South Korea that's right and um, well it's also no I mean we shouldn't forget as I guarantee somebody on this group does you know uh, Israel is the other undeclared nuclear power Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we know from Venunu, who was uh, jailed as a result of leaking that Israel was Israel had a nuclear program, that it has one. Uh, so you know we we you know but non-proliferation is a is a criti- is a proliferation. I'm sorry, is a critical problem. And um, you know the other the the other country that everybody kind of thinks about at the moment and is somewhat nervous about is uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and, you know, which is another tried- reason why the Americans are so keen to limit the possibilities of Iran getting. Uh, proper uh, nuclear right. weapons because the Saudi Arabians could afford <laughs> to, to, correct to they could afford anything well they've just bought Newcastle United as you know oh uh, yeah despite you know and it, it, it is yeah you know this is there's a phenomenal sports washing going on there with um, Saudi Arabia and uh, you're going to see a lot more of that the the Saudi investments in media worldwide are phenomenal and increasing Disney various other companies like that they used to, it used to be through uh, if you remember Prince Al-Walid um who was one of those people caught up when all of the billionaires in Saudi Arabia were put into the Ritz and turned upside down and had their pockets shaken. Prince Al-Walid was a very big investor, for example, in um, a news corporation at one point. Oh, yeah. But now it's now it's much more direct through the um, the, the, the various uh, sovereign investment funds, uh, which all report back directly to Mohammed bin Salman or Mr. Bonesaw. Yeah, Mr. Bonesaw. Yeah, no, I won't be offering the kaka up for sale to the Saudis because I'm not sure I'd live to tell a tale. That's right. That's right. Um, and and you're right, though, about Newcastle and United. Uh, Britain has become this amazing money laundering pit. Um, Rep- let's call it a reputation laundering pit because reputation laundering is not illegal. No. <laughs> no. But no, yes, yes, no. you know the city of the city of London. I mean, the Brexit, of course, has done incredible damage to the city of London. But the city of London is a great place to hide money, whether you're a Russian oligarch, whether you're a you're a Saudi. I mean, the, the um, Saudi Arabia now owns a, a, a large chunk of the Independent newspaper, mm-hmm. the Evening Standard newspaper in the UK. Um, now Newcastle United, um, there's a lot moving, and it's going to have a Grand Prix this year from Formula One, which will go virtually anywhere. Yeah, well, that's another thing, Formula One. That's another um, piece of binge-watching I need to get onto, the mm. whole drive-to-survive thing. Yes, it's very good. Um, now, now, tell me about the other bomb in the Middle East, which is floating oh, around yeah. at the moment. Yeah, so last last week I mentioned in my in my bulletin, and would have mentioned on our thing if we hadn't, hadn't had that echo, there's a, 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 million, uh, a million barrels of oil sitting in, uh, in what used to be an ultra-large crude carrier called the Safer um, off Yemen. And it has been, because of the Yemen civil war, it hasn't been maintained. It no longer has the inert gas that you need to have pumped into the into the tanks in order to stabilise the fumes from the from the crude oil. 
And, you know, the predictions are that it would not only destroy every fish in the Red Sea, uh, but it would also damage all the desalination plants uh, oh. and cut off water to, to many, many, many people and, of course, to appalling damage, uh, environmental damage and damage to Yemen. So there is a kind of UN plan to try and get the ship unloaded, uh, but the Houthi rebels who were running Yemen, despite the attacks from uh, from Saudi Arabia's coalition, uh, also want it repaired, and the UN has no money to repair it. So there's a, there's an incredible crisis, a bomb waiting to go off there, uh, which would make the, you know, make the, well, actually wouldn't make the bomb in Beirut look small because that was immense. But um, uh, in fact, I read the other day, it was, you know, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. Um, and it's also Bernard, if we can segue to that, about to kick off because we had uh, a number of people killed and shots fired uh, for over an hour or so in Beirut yesterday. And what's kind of interesting about that is it's Hezbollah, which is the most dominant political group and religious group in, um, uh, and an armed group in Lebanon, really does not want the inquiry into what happened at that waterfront explosion to identify what really happened because the waterfront was pretty much controlled by Hezbollah. So, and the risk of this is because that was a bit of a staged brawl in a sense between staged shootout between Christian and uh, and and Shia Hezbollah uh, uh, forces, but that was exactly where the um, civil war broke out in the 1990s. Mm. That exact location. So, you know, there's 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 a lot going on in Lebanon, and it's a it's an incredibly sad story. Now, the other thing that I've been watching from a distance with fascination is the energy <coughs> crisis in mm. Europe. Um, but it's not just Europe. It's also in China. And it's something in the last two weeks or so before the Glasgow Climate Summit we should all keep an eye on for two reasons. A, it looks like finally the rubber is hitting the road of various climate and emissions reductions policies pushing up the price of energy. So we're seeing oil prices, gas prices, electricity prices mm -hmm. exploding across Europe and into China, where the Chinese government have been saying for months, shut down the coal plant. And then when <laughs> when the electricity started running out, oh no, start up the coal plant. Yeah. And so and in the, in the midst of this, Vladimir Putin is rubbing his hands together. Tell us what's going on. Yes, there. well also just uh, Julian on the on the on the panel on the um on our viewers panel has mentioned France, of course, and mm. Macron announced a, 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 a sort of rejuvenation of the already very, very large um, French nuclear industry because he sees it as a critical um, no fossil fuel, no pollution, no real downsides um, um, nuclear industry. Um, you know, France is leading the way in the possibility of uh, fusion technology, which is the great, the great hope, which has never worked yet, but is they're building a gigantic test um, test uh, nuclear plant for, for fusion, but uh, he has he has announced a program of much smaller the construction of much much smaller uh, nuclear power stations, many many more of them. I, I must admit that has always appealed to me to some extent um, as a as a bridge to the bridge to the future and a, and a way of sustaining growth. Um, it is interesting. I actually think Glasgow is going to be a disaster, Bernard. I think that uh, unlike unlike COP26 in Paris, where the French were very coherent about what they wanted, and you, it's very unclear what the British are going to do to actually push anybody towards any particular direction. And when you see China, China started a review, I think, on Wednesday of its uh, coal power, it, it, of its decisions to sort of cut back on coal, because they've had these rolling blackouts, and they, you know, she cannot afford to have rolling blackouts in China at a time when he's when he's coming down on industry and trying to spread wealth much much more effectively through through uh, through China. Now, I've been rather mean in my review this week and focused particularly on the UK, where the army has been called in in the last week or so mm. to deliver. Uh, fuel to um, four courts, uh, and there've been brawls and so on. But because the whole, you know, this crisis is somewhat wide, although there are not queues at petrol stations in the rest of Europe. Brexit has led to, you know, a, a departure of tens of thousands of European workers from all sorts of occupations, including heavy goods vehicle drivers. It's like this so, national head slapping you know, moment. Oh no! Yeah, exactly. Who <laughs> what did we think was going to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so today they've announced they they're going to try and recruit 800 butchers to come in and kill the pigs in the British abattoirs because they're having to just kill the pigs and bury them because they don't have enough people to cut them up. So again, nothing to do with Brexit, of course. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, it's it's um. And, and, it's and a weird you mentioned Putin. Uh, I mean, I, he, I, he is such. He 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 is the sort of Blofeld James Bondian character who just um, uh, keeps on keeps on giving, and you know he is saying that uh, it's Europe and not him that's politicising this, but of course he is very much in control of how much gas goes from uh, goes through Gazprom and on to the rest of Europe, particularly Germany, and he wants that Nord Stream two gas pipeline opened as soon as possible. Uh, and that gives him extraordinary weight. And his spokes, his um, um, high representative to the European Commission um, this week said some fairly extraordinary things, the kind of thing that you might normally hear from a mafiosa who said Putin gave some advice to Gazprom to be more flexible, and something makes me think that Gazprom will listen. <laughs> and he, suggest, he suggested that... Uh, Europe stop th- stops thinking of Russia as an adversary, and things will get resolved easier. That's right. Um, you've got a lovely new, uh, gas pipeline there. It would be a shame if anything happened. It would be a shame if something should happen to your economies. Yeah, exactly. No, no, yeah. I mean, I think from memory there was actually a Bond film where the core of the movie was about this gas pipeline through Kazakhstan mm. to Europe, from memory. Um, and uh, I bet... Well, I think the- because we can't go to the movies anymore, I'm suggesting that we all watch all of the old Bond films before the new one, you know, before we can go and see the new one in cinemas probably in tw- 2022. Oh, yeah. No, I won't tell well, you. Mind you, you but- can in Wellington. No, I can, imagine. and that's yeah. something I'm quite keen to do, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, some points from uh, a few of our listeners about um, climate change in F1. Yes, 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 there's a horrible contradiction. But I think you're right. The electric F1 is pretty exciting as well. It's just not quite as I think it is actually really, yeah, the, it's, well, it's not quite electric F1, but yes, the, the, the uh, formula, formula E is actually incredibly exciting to watch. It's on very, it's very intense. They're very, the cars are very, very similar. But I must admit, having watched, binge watched lately Drive to Survive, the latest, the series three, the latest one in the Netflix series, I came away massively full of admiration for Lewis Hamilton, mm. not just as a brilliant driver, but it was very clear to me from what I what I saw there that his work in making Formula One more aware of race and of um, Black Lives Matter and so on was pretty extraordinary. And the extent to which it's plastered over all of their material is a remarkable achievement for him. Yeah, Apart from his own 101 wins. Yeah, no, I mean, people think about F1 and the heroes being, you know, Senna and uh, Schumacher and the likes, but he really has to go into the pantheon uh, now, as much for what he did off well, the Julian, Julian tells me he's a tax dodger, but I, I actually, can I just say, these people, are, and, and foot, let, me, let me just also say, footballers are underpaid. <laughs> And if they for their for their limited for their limited lifespan, if they need to live in Monaco, to um, set themselves up for the rest of their lives uh, relative to the sponsors and relative to the others who make money out of this, then I'm quite happy to do it. Yeah, mind you, I carry on, Bernard. I, I wouldn't mind a, a, a weekend in Monaco. <laughs> yes. Um, now, segueing into the land of apostrophes, you have a ah, skateboarding yes. Australian real estate dog story. Well, yes, it is. So, so one of my pet hates in the modern world, and I don't want to be a pedant because I'm not always uh, perfect at um, punctuation myself. I wasn't properly educated, but I think we all know that we hate people who go Y O U R when they mean your Y O Y O apostrophe R E. It drives me absolutely batty. And for the pedants out there, there was a wonderful case in Australia this week where an Australian judge refused to d- dismiss a defamation case against an Australian real estate agent who had slagged off on Facebook uh, another Australian real estate agent for whom he had used to work. And the trouble was that he hadn't used the apostrophe between uh, in employees, between uh, em- the word employee and the S. So he effectively said that this guy uh, had failed or had let down all of his employees rather than this particular employee. And it was a very good example of uh, how, a, how a missing comma can really cost you money. He's probably going to be facing a $250,000 court case, let alone being found guilty of defamation. Yes. And what it reminded me of, and I've become very, very conscious of this, because it's not a terribly English thing necessarily, or New Zealand thing, but the Oxford comma. And I have become a religious user of the Oxford comma, which is the comma before the final and in the list. When you say 
I love Patrick Smelly, comma, Bernard Hickey, comma, and Peter Bale. Ah. No, see? this is, see, I'm still learning yeah. this time. And it I'm, took me I until I was... Oxford, yeah, because I... there was a wonderful case uh, a couple of years ago in Maine uh, in the United States where uh, I think it was a $5 million judgment in favour of some truck drivers for their salaries revolved entirely around the use of an Oxford comma or the absence of an Oxford comma. No, I, I have a lot of fun looking at street signs and um, advertisements where, where things are all all wrong, and it couldn't happen to a nicer bunch than some Australian um, real estate agents. And I, I think from memory, one of the things he said in the tweet or whatever it was was use. So not even your. Oh, well, use. use. Yeah, well, yeah, mind you, of course, you know Spanish has the equivalent of the use. Uses uses something that's abs- You know that that probably should be there in English and probably was. Just I, I noticed we've set fire to everybody's pedantry on the on the chat there, but Bernard, we've got uh, confusing T H E I R and there is worse. Well, we'll argue. This is starting to look like a Kim Hill show here. Commas are sorely lacking, as are colons and semicolons. Uh, and don't you mean apostrophe? Did I say comma? Yes, I do mean apostrophe. Thank you very much, Neil. Oh, my God. I stand corrected. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another good semicolon, says someone. Um, okay. Yeah, I've started, I've started trying to punctuate better, and I can recommend a wonderful book, which I did put in my thing in the, um, in, in the uh, spinoff, Dreyer's English, D-R-E-Y-E-R apostrophe ah. S, um, by a very, very amusing, rather shrill book editor called Benjamin Dreyer. Uh, which is the sort of new shrunk and white. Ah, right. I shall and put the a link into the... shoots and leaves. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, now it's time to um, answer your questions, but also uh, call time on the poll. I see 44 of the 64 people who've come in today... Gosh, that's good. Thank you. ...have, um, have signed up to the poll, and it's neck and neck between... Um, and we had advice for the cabinet on Monday. Leave Auckland and the, the Waikato and Northland at level three. Slightly in the lead with 39%, just ahead of loosened down to level one. Um, and actually, as we speak, um, the, 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 the jury is coming in for Leave Auckland at level three at 48%. So I'm going to leave that up for a while because there's a few people who haven't voted yet. Um, I My gut feeling is that the government will leave Auckland, Waikato and Northland at level three, even though um, a whole bunch of uh, people who they're not taking advice from anymore are telling them to go up to level four. And uh, even though ACT uh, and David Seymour would like a Freedom Day on December 4, I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. And unfortunately, I doubt it's going to happen before before Christmas. Now, I wanted to open oh, it up to Dara, questions. I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll put the book on the, on the chat. Go, go ahead. Yes, then. yes. I wanted to open it up to questions, so please do um, throw them into the chat there. Um, and I'll also check the, uh, the questions that are on the... Uh, the stream on the Kaka. It's wonderful. But I see somebody who must be a relative of yours is also congratulating you on a great on the, on the Kaka being wonderful. Oh, that's nice. Thank you very much. Yeah. I actually see some names in there that I do recommend. Hello, Lance. How's it going? I, I worked with Lance for a while at um, at Fairfax, and and he's doing some uh, wonderful things now. Um, questions for today. Um, yep, we've got some people who are keen on not getting rid of the lockdowns. Housing. Uh, fair enough. Catastrophe. Oh, God, must be. <laughs> There's only a few things that matter in New Zealand. Uh, housing, interest rates, and at the moment, COVID. But um, question is, uh, should Labour have suspended the planning restrictions, um, as Judith Collins suggested? Yes. Uh, the, I've, I'm coming to a view, and this is an exclusive today on, on today's um, Hoon. I think there is no point in repealing the Resource Management Act anymore. For a long time I thought the RMA was the problem. I actually don't think it is now. And the unfortunate thing is it's going to take 10 years for the new RMA to settle down. In the meantime, it's going to be used as an excuse by a lot of councils in the government to not do things. So the real problem with the RMA is not so much the RMA itself. It's how councils and the government Mm. were able to use it as an excuse to say no. And they wanted to say no because they didn't want to spend the taxpayers' money on the infrastructure. Why? Because taxpayers wanted tax cuts. And that's how you get back into government as an as a political party or stay in as a councillor or a mayor in, um, in local government. So 
Uh, I actually think that suspending the RMA wouldn't have made a difference. What I think would have made a difference is if the government had simply said, we're suspending the RMA and we will pay for any infrastructure needed in transport or in housing to get a whole bunch of houses built and a whole bunch of climate-friendly um, public uh, transport um, uh, stuff going. In my view, actually, the way to do that is to simply, um, and I'm, I'm, the, this will cause blowback, uh, essentially shut down the motorways and turn them into cycleways and pathways in and around Auckland, or at least the big roads, and um, and really start uh, building a whole bunch of um, friendly apartments and parks and things. And somebody said to me the other day that if we realised how many, uh, how much public housing and low-cost housing is being built in Auckland, we would realise that there is, in fact, no housing problem in Auckland. Do you, uh, no. need to, do you need to come up to Auckland and do a decent story looking around about how much is being built? Because oh, there is it's, an awful it's, lot being it's, built. It's a gigantic amount. Yeah, the trouble is the amount of housing that we're short of is gigantic as well. So mm. the, the Infrastructure Commission came out this week and said we were short 115,000 houses. Now, you've got to remember that we're currently at the moment building about 40,000, 45,000 new houses a year, and we were short um, at least um, 100,000 houses before that. And at the same time, you've got a lot of turnover. So houses are being mm. knocked down or they dissolve in the mould and they need to be replaced. And also, at the same time, you've got this change in the structure of households. So in the past, you had mum, dad, and three kids, and maybe the auntie and the and the granddad. Uh, now you've got one or two-person households. So that means you essentially have to have more households for the same population. And but, isn't it, but Bernard, isn't it, isn't it true that... Um, uh, we're so we're just thinking about one side of this, Kayangora. It seems to be. I mean, I, I know we had a, had a problem last well, the last couple of years in the last Labour government term that, that, that not enough houses were built. But isn't there an argument that Kyangor is one of the more effective of the government departments, or it, is that a myth? That no, that is true, and it is um, hitting its targets to build houses, and it's building mm -hmm. eight thousand houses. But remember, we've got a shortage of one hundred and fifteen thousand houses. Mm. And this uh, this week, I did a podcast for the spin-off, talking about uh, different ways to fund, particularly community housing and cooperative housing in New Zealand. At the moment, um, our banking system and the way that we fund new developments is very much based on private developers uh, building suburbs full of McMansions with three-car garages. We're not do very good at building these sort of 10, 20 apartment um, developments on hmm. a couple of sections, uh, big, partly because the banks are afraid of lending to these property developers um, because you get all sorts of delays with consents and building materials. And so it's very hard for the developers to get the money to start the project. And then secondly, the people who want to buy off the plan, um, first-home buyers, owner-occupiers and investors, they also struggle to get the loan out of the bank that they want to fund it yeah. because of the same uncertainty. So you get this horrible problem we have at the moment where we've got um, about $400 billion in term deposit accounts and savings accounts and banks just sitting there pretty much doing nothing apart from funding a lot of uh, bank mortgages to buy existing houses – which should be freed up to lend to build these new developments. And we've got um, upwards of $250 billion worth of money in our funds management industry, most of which now goes offshore to buy shares, but which would like to invest in solving our housing crisis. And so the podcast I did this week was about... Uh, community finance, which is uh, developing bonds, impact social impact bonds to build social housing and um, borrowing the money from KiwiSaver funds like Pathfinder and Simplicity and um, putting that money in with the Salvation Army and others to build these. And who would direct that, Bernard? Is that, is that something that needs to be directed sort of by the government or is it something that the private sector would No, the do. private sector would do it. And in fact, in other countries they do it, the UK and Australia, when they have a government underwrite. So the key mm. thing here is the uncertainty about building and the uncertainty that a lot of private financiers have when there is no government underwrite. But at the moment, the government can effectively underwrite these projects by promising to provide income-related rent subsidies. And that's one of the ways these things are done. Mm. But we need more of it, particularly because the government is still <laughs> spending upwards of $4 billion a year on accommodation supplements and income-related rent subsidies, effectively subsidising mm. landlords to make tax-free capital gains using taxpayers' money. 
And that is money that should be used to build new houses, not just to make landlords of existing houses. And, and let's just, just go into the questions again. Darren has asked whether Will, whether I think or we think Will Winston apologised to Harry Tam. Presumably they didn't, weren't here at the very beginning when we said we weren't going to discuss this, much as we find it both find it incredibly entertaining that uh, a man from the mongrel mob is um, suing Winston Peters, which is, to me, incredibly funny and uh I, and I do hope it does lead to that but we we're not going to be addressing that unless um i would pay we absolutely have to i would pay I, I will money be watching that with great interest i would pay money to have winston peters in the dock of a high court with harry tam asking the questions in court which he yeah, would I, was, I thought harry i mean I, I don't know who harry i mean I, I now know who harry tam is but i thought he was extraordinarily lucid in his description about what happened and his warning to um to, to Winston the other day, um, and, and we may have discussed last week the the the, the uh, spokesman for the for the Waikato Mongol Mob uh, Kingdom, as it's called, was also extremely cogent. So, uh, not on, not only do they have um, interesting outfits and bikes, they've got um, some some very cogent spokespeople. Yes, I wanted to go to the Q and A uh, now. There's a few, mm. uh, some questions in there from a few people. Um, uh, from a question from Sydney asking about um, where the the quarantines are being abandoned. Um, is this a good idea? Well, Sydney had a particular. Uh, uh, plan, which was when they got to 70% vaccination, they'd open up a bit. And when they got to 80%, they would open up everything (laughs) to at least the vaccinated. And uh, that's what they're doing. And that's one of the complaints people have about the current government is that it's been very cagey about which particular vaccination threshold it's really talking about. Now, it's talked a lot about 90% recently, but I've asked questions of the PM over the last week or two. Does that mean 90% across the country? Does it mean 90% of old people? Does it mean 90% of young Māori and Pacifica? We're never quite sure because she no, wants to... No, she's been very reluctant, rightly, to, in a way, to, to commit. Just not, not, I don't think so much for political reasons as just there is no absolutely perfect threshold because she's seen what happened with having kind of public thresholds like that. Yeah. Um, another question from Luke about what options are on the table. I think um, Monday, the most likely option is to simply retain level three for Auckland, mm. Northland and the Waikato and to keep everyone else at level two. Um, essentially, it's a middle path between um, one group saying go up to level four and another group saying take us down mm. and essentially getting those two to blame each other and uh, taking the middle path. Um, we'll see. The numbers get a lot, lot worse over the weekend, which is quite possible that could change. Uh, question from Jordan about whether tomorrow's Vaxathon will be a success. It might be a rating success. We'll see whether it boosts the actual vaccination rates. You'd have to hope something like that will. The key thing, though, for me, um, and the piece of news that I've found most disturbing over the last couple of weeks is that uh, the Waipareta Trust, run by John Tamahiri, mm. had to go to the High Court to get the Ministry of Health to send the data on which Māori were not vaccinated and where they yeah. lived and what their phone number was. And uh, now I understand the privacy reasons behind that, and I'm sure the Ministry of Health could just point to a gazillion statutes to say, no, nah, no, nah, we're not going to give you that data. But we're in a crisis, an emergency, and the Waipareta Trust have proven that they know how to talk to people and get them to get vaccinated from their communities, and all they need is the data, and still... I think now they've finally got it because someone shook shook the tree high up. But to have to go to the high court to get that information is extraordinary. Um, so those are the things that will really matter. Um, the Vaxathon will make a few of us feel good and maybe raise some money and there'll be some singing. But the real thing that matters is getting the hands, getting that data into the hands of the groups who will make a difference. And it still shocks me that we're only three or four weeks into having... Um, a whole fleet of buses um, going around the country, not yeah. on doors. I, I also feel, Bernard, that we haven't, including us perhaps, but not, not so much you and me, but whether we could if anybody wants us to, but the addressing the misinformation, mm-hmm. including this mayor in uh, uh, Coromandel Thames who should know who should know better. And, um, you know, hearing today about the various GPs who've written to the, written to the government objecting to the whole to the whole process. And 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 saying that vaccine that these kinds of vaccines do not work, I, it, it's an extraordinary idea. That uh, I mean, I think you know we had a couple of teachers or people who said they were teachers, saying they wouldn't abide by the uh, mandatory vaccination as well. Yeah, I'm just not sure there's enough being done to counter the misinformation. No, I mean we've talked about this on a few a few podcasts. Uh, I'm in favour of. Um 
Shutting Facebook down. Yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty much. I mean, obviously not switching it off, although there's a part of me that really wants to mm. switch it off. Mm. But um, just making sure these uh, algorithms, which essentially highlight the most wrong, most dangerous information into people's news feeds um, are turned down so that it doesn't get spread quite so wildly or actively simply to improve engagement and time on site for um, Facebook's advertising revenues. And uh, not just Facebook, I think Instagram and TikTok are um, amongst the more damaging in the communities mm. that we're trying and to reach. And certainly YouTube has a, has a serious problem with it. I mean, the, dif- the difficulty with it is there is absolutely fabulous, good information out there that should make us completely comfortable with mRNA vaccines. Mm. In fact, extraordinarily proud of the scientists who've created them and the, and the intelligence that's gone into that. Uh, and there's been really good public health information. And I just, it's very interesting, the, the roots of disbelief of, of and mistrust of high quality public information, whether it's from journalism uh, or, from, or from government. It's a very interesting idea. And this, what, what always bothers me with it is this idea among the conspiracists or the people who are vulnerable to this, that they know that they've, quote, done their own research. <laughs> oh, the, the, the internet is a powerful mm. thing. We Because we experience it ourselves, we think it's more valuable. Um, I wonder if in decades to come we'll look back on this time as um, a giant experiment with people's brains that and societies and our information systems, which... Um, in some cases, it's gone amazingly well. In other cases, it's just... Yeah, well, don't, don't get me started on pornography, but um, that's, that's it. We'll do that on another... We won't do pornography. We'll talk about <laughs> pornography on another day. <laughs> Saved by the bell. It is five o'clock. That was the weekly hoon for the week ending the 15th of October. I'd like to thank Peter Bale so much. And I'd quite like to thank Bernard Hickey. Yes. Thank you, Bernard. And looking forward to actually being in Auckland one day when the... Um, when the restrictions are lifted, uh, hopefully. And thank you so much to everyone who came along today to participate in the Hoon. It's wonderful. Yes, thank you very much. It's really amazing to see you there and, and to see your questions. And if, if we've missed any, uh, I do apologise. Thank you. It's it's brilliant to have you on. And remember, this went out to all of the subscribers to the Kaka. Um, I'm just uh, thrilled and humbled at how much uh, involvement and support it's had. And I really enjoy these um opportunities to talk just shoot the breeze have a hoon about the week that was kakete i know everyone See you thank later. you very much cheers <laughs>